0: Hello, everyone, Dr. Stillman here and today we're going to be talking about birth control, which is a topic that is super controversial and super timely. And that really upsets a lot of people with some of the inconvenient truths and facts. Before I get into this, I want to make it really clear that I am not going to get into today the overall risks and benefits of birth control with regards to things like cancer, thrombotic risk, whatever. Why? because that topic has actually been done to absolute death by people with more expertise and background in the field than me. What I'm going to do today is talk about things that I don't see anyone else talking about because the vast majority of people don't understand it. And it's really super important. And for some reason we're having trouble streaming to Facebook, which is a shame, but that's okay. We can post this over there later. Um, and I'm going to keep streaming to YouTube. So let's start by talking about what toxins are we actually talking about here? And why does it matter? So for starters, why did I decide to talk about this? So birth control, and by birth control, I'm really referring to oral contraceptive pills, you could extrapolate this to any type of hormonal contraceptive, there are many different kinds. Again, I don't particularly feel like getting into all that. If you want to look that up, knock yourself out. But the bottom line here is that women are using synthetic uh, hormones in order to manipulate their ability to bear children and whether or not they get pregnant, to put it another way, during their prime years of fertility. And this has massive, massive impacts on their health, their happiness and their lives. And it is very important that we talk about it because I fear that women are not being adequately counseled today on whether or not they actually should be using hormonal birth control and specifically oral contraceptive pills. Okay. This is really big business. The, the contraceptive pill market was 13 billion in 2018. It's going to be 20 billion by 2026. It's going to almost double in 10 years. That's crazy. Now I want you to understand that this is not actually just about the oral contraceptive pills. I pulled that up in this fortune business insights article, but if you look at it as an industry and you include hormonal contraceptive in the form of say IUDs or implantables, you've got even more money coming in from that. What I want you to understand about this is that doctors do not have an incentive to give you a lot of time and education as to what the long-term impacts of this are because no one pays doctors well for that unless you go to a doctor who's out of pocket like me who can afford to then spend a lot of time with you explaining all the ins and outs and upsides and downsides of different interventions to you. Unfortunately, because patients perceive value in what is being done to them, sold to them, implanted in them, given to them in bottles, boxes, and bags, they are willing to pay lots of money for those things. And they do not put the appropriate premium on expert guidance and understanding, which is part of why people today are so sick, sick, despite spending more and more money on their healthcare. I talk about this a lot and it needs to be talked about because we have to break people out of the mindset in order to be optimally healthy of, I've just got to get as much stuff for my healthcare dollars as possible. And into the mindset of I need the best information, advice and education possible in order to be healthy and well. You don't need more stuff. You need the information that actually matters and that's actually right for you, okay? So today I'm gonna try and give you a really big overview of all the really big issues that I see going into and playing into a woman's decision to use contraceptive pills or hormonal birth control because I think that they're not being adequately counseled on the long-term risks of this as I think they should be, okay. So why is this happening? Why are we using more and more oral contraceptive pills? The obvious answer is people want to have sex and not get pregnant. Shocking. I know part of that has to do with diminishing resources and, you know, economic, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for opportunities relative to the number of people on planet earth, right? I'm not going to get into that either. I think all of you can see that the world is getting more and more and more crowded and this creates problems. And then people want to have fewer children, so they don't have to deal with them in a resource poor environment whether you're talking about how expensive it is to have kids in downtown Manhattan where the average private school costs more than college, or you're talking about having too many children in a urban slum in India where you can barely afford to feed any of the children decent food, let alone a dozen of them, okay? So one of the reasons why I also think this is increasing in uh, prevalence is that women are being increasingly treated for medical problems with birth control. I mean, women will readily tell me When I go to the doctor, almost any problem I have as a woman, particularly 40 and under, the doctor's answer is, let's give you birth control, okay? Smart women understand that there's gotta be downsides to this and they ask questions and often don't get the answers in the depth of information that they desire before starting to take these fundamentally abnormal, or I should say artificial hormones. And real quick, let's cover what that means and why it's super important so you have to understand that the hormone industry is really organized around patent law and great books on this are like stay young and sexy forever by jonathan wright my mentor dr david rosensweet wrote a great book on this called happy healthy hormones it's somewhere up there on that shelf which is all about um, hormonal uh, replacement therapy in uh menopause But the reason this is so important is that there are bioidentical hormones that are exactly what your body makes and there are synthetic hormones, which are what birth control are. Why is this important? You can patent things that are synthetic and fake and the pharmaceutical industry loves to do that because when you patent something then nobody else can make it, package it and sell it. And that means that by advertising it, you can corner the market and make an absolute killing. This has a lot to do with the incestuous relationships between the the alphabet soup agencies and the pharmaceutical industry. That's part of how the whole, you know, big pharma gravy train really rolls. Bioidentical hormones, in contrast, are actually so cheap and affordable that they can be difficult for people to actually make any money on. Um, Where the industry shows up for that is in um, the fact that the government's regulating them. And so they do restrict access. And so it does cost a premium to be on bioidentical hormones because you have to find a doctor willing to do it. And we're not that common, although we do exist, and we it is available. But I think that the big reason why women are using more and more and more hormonal contraceptive uh, pills and uh, devices, is that they're having more and more problems with their endocrine system that are manifesting as diseases, things like endometriosis, perimenstrual headaches, PMS, PCOS, women today have never, are struggling like never before with lots of problems related to their hormones and their cycles. And if you talk to them, they'll say, yeah, you know, my mother didn't have these problems. My grandmother didn't have these problems. Sometimes it's hard to know, you know, is it just that grandma didn't talk about that or mom didn't talk about that? We really do struggle, I think, to quantify that very accurately. But I think one thing is very clear. women are on more and more and more birth control. And a big piece of it is that we live in an environment that's been poisoned by our use of chemicals. These are specifically endocrine disrupting chemicals. This is a great review on this topic that I think does great justice to the fact that these endocrine disrupting compounds are having a really negative effect on women's health, particularly on women's fertility, okay? And there's lots to this, there's tons of data, there's lots of different products that are endocrine-disrupting compounds like heavy metals. I'll see these positive in lots of different patients' tests. Parabens, these are all over the place in personal care products. Um, PAHs, phytoestrogens, these are in a lot of foods, personal care products. Um, bisphenol, bisphenols, bisphenol A being the most common and, and widely read about, which is in plastics, phthalates, industrial chemicals. I could go on, but I don't want to bore you to tears with all the minutiae The bottom line is that our world is full of endocrine-disrupting compounds, and so it's not a surprise or shouldn't surprise anybody that women are struggling with diseases of their reproductive organs and function, and that giving them supplemental synthetic hormones can give them relief. I never reach for oral birth control pills to control these symptoms because they aren't what the body makes. And I am wary of what people say about how safe birth control is because I've watched my colleagues get egg all over their faces over and over and over and over again with one drug class after another that they say it's safe and effective. And then six months later, six years later, 12 years later, the bodies are piling up, the epidemiologists are figuring it out. And the doctors are saying, well, the pharmaceutical industry told us they were safe. What did we know? You know, we didn't know any better. We didn't have any other data. They keep trusting the people who have the biggest criminal fines in history. In some cases, they keep trusting an industry that continues to abuse the public trust and never really get published for it or punished for it. I should say, I don't do that. That's why I'm skeptical of birth control pills. And that's why I use bioidentical hormones to treat these symptoms and problems in women who are in my practice because they do not have an adverse event profile that you see with synthetic uh, hormones. Okay. So One of the reasons why this is so complicated is that it is very hard to study this kind of stuff. And one of the biggest factors that I see people not talking about is the effect of endocrine disrupting compounds and birth control on minerals in the body. If you want to see some stunning data for effects on mortality, morbidity, longevity, Go look at the data on mineral consumption and mineral balance and health and longevity. It's shocking the effects of different intakes of minerals. And I mean, you know, I could mention in the same breath vitamins. Cause guess where all the minerals are stored in the food, the same places that the vitamins are stored. Okay. At least in many cases, uh, you want to see some stunning data. Go look there. That's why processed food is so consistently associated with premature death and disease. So why am I bringing this up in the same video as birth control? Why am I not just talking about, or, you know, uh, pesticides and herbicides and endocrine disrupting compounds. Okay. Lots of people are talking about that. And honestly, I don't know of any data showing that birth control pills actually cause you to retain or alter the toxicokinetics of modern toxins and endocrine disrupting compounds other than heavy metals. And what do the heavy metals have to do with the minerals? They all compete. If you missed my webinar with Clark Engelbert on hair tissue mineral analysis secrets thereof this past weekend, you should watch it. It was really good. People loved it. We got tons of views on it. Tons of shares. People are still rolling in and watching that video. We sold out the course that we're offering for hair tissue mineral analysis within like, I think 24 or 48 hours of launching the webinar. Uh, you know, and we didn't even send them any emails announcing it to the email list. It's really popular as an as an issue because people are starting to wake up to how important minerals are for their overall health and well-being. And this all connects back to hormones and endocrine disrupting compounds. And here's why I'm so skeptical of anyone who says that synthetic hormones are safe. We don't actually understand that much about how minerals affect health and longevity and their interactions with hormones. And I say this as somebody who's read a lot about this. And there are a lot of ins and outs and a lot of caveats here that we have to be very careful to make if we're going to uh, not make therapeutic mistakes and actually hurt patients. So what is this paper about? It's about the effects of age and sex on copper absorption, biological half-life, and status in humans. And to make a really long story short, because this is a deep, deep rabbit hole in and of itself, if you look at oral contraceptives, they elevate plasma copper. I see this over and over and over and over again. And one of the things I see keeping company with with overloaded plasma copper is things like headaches, abdominal pain, pelvic pain, IBS, all kinds of other somatic pain, muscle muscle pain, joint pain. I see it keeping company with brain fog and fatigue and poor sleep and anxiety. And one of the things that will happen when you chase this excess plasma copper out of the body with things like high-dose vitamin C, zinc, sometimes things like manganese, molybdenum, chromium that have at least a certain amount of um, homology and therefore compete with copper is people will get worlds better. And one of my pet peeves is people who say people are not getting enough copper in our modern world. Many, many, many people do not need more copper. They actually need to get rid of some of the excess copper in their bodies. And the answer to that is not increasing dietary copper. If anything, I think on balance, the average person is short on zinc. That's a story for another day. Um, And the reason the caveat I want to add to this is really that it's not just about the absolute level of copper in the blood. You have to understand that these minerals are not just floating around free, they're supposed to be bound to enzymes. Okay. When, when minerals are bound to enzymes, they can do their jobs when they are not bound to enzymes, they cannot do their jobs. That's why if you look at the literature on things like dementia, you'll see that people who have Alzheimer's disease have elevated levels potentially of copper in either their blood or their tissue, but it's not bound to enzymes. So it can't be used. And so this free copper as one example, but you can look at iron, you can look at molybdenum, manganese, cadmium, lead, mercury. I mean, all these minerals and metals, that extra unbound mineral is creating oxidative stress that is destroying the body and creating cellular damage. And I think pound for pound, minerals and heavy metals are more toxic than anything else on planet Earth. If you look just at the amount of free radical damage that's done by iron in the human body alone, it dwarfs every other contributor to free radical damage. That's very well established in the literature. That's in books like Iron, The Most Toxic Element by, uh, I think his name was Weinberg, or not, not Weinberg. Um, Oh, uh, it was something like uh, uh, Vance. Don't quote me on that. I don't have the reference pulled up in front of me. Guys like uh, Paul Dennis Mangan uh, wrote about this in his book, Dumping Iron. And my point is simply this. These interactions are very complex. And they, are, they defy people like me who read about them obsessively, simplifying them turn ter- in terms that are readily understandable to the public. The fact that minerals play a critical role in what are thought of as hormonal diseases is actually not some theory. And this is just one example that I wanted to show people. So it turns out that women who have pelvic endometriosis tend to have iron overload in their peritoneal cavity. Look at this. Higher rates of ferritin and hemocytorin deposits were observed in the peritoneum adjacent to red, black, and white lesions compared to normal appearing peritoneum. This is very, very important. Iron overload was observed in the cellular and peritoneal fluid compartments of the peritoneal cavity of of women with endometriosis. Iron deposits seem to be related to the presence of lesions, suggesting that iron may be involved in the pathogenesis of endometriosis. This paper is now old, 2002. It's old enough to have a drink. If you look at the literature since then, it's exploded. There's tons and tons of papers documenting this association. But iron is very, very tricky. It is very hard to understand what is going on in the body with iron. Why is this so important? Why do I think this has a lot to do with why people see changes in birth control? Uh, their symptoms when they're on birth control changes in their long-term health, depending on whether or not they took birth control because minerals control metabolism in a very powerful and fundamental way. Another thing I want people to know about minerals and their relationship to hormones Mm -hmm. is that iron in particular has a very powerful effect on how we age. So if you look at this paper, iron overload accelerates bone loss in healthy postmenopausal women and middle aged men a three year retrospective longitudinal study. Again, this is not actually that uh, This is not like an isolated finding. This is really well known now and well described. I'm not going to give you the details on this because I think they're actually better shown in this table right here. This table right here is one of the most important I could possibly show you. And believe me, I've looked at a lot of tables. This table shows you quartile of serum ferritin and certain other factors, or I should say characteristics of the study population. And if you, I'm going to make this long story short, the higher the serum ferritin in this postmenopausal group, the worse their labs look, they have more weight, they have a higher fasting glucose, they have, where is the next one that I was worried about? They tend to have a higher high sensitivity CRP, although it's not um, uh, statistically significant. Amongst men, they end up with a higher, where is it? Triglycerides level, this is significant. Uh, where's the other one? They have a higher tendency to have metabolic syndrome as men. That is also very, very important. This is also shown in women. What does this mean and why is this so important? The ferritin numbers here are totally 100% normal. 95 wouldn't make any clinician bat an eye, OK? Neither would 186 in a man, OK? And so the reason this is so important is that most doctors look at what are considered normal levels of ferritin and they think you're fine and they won't even check it i started to check ferritin levels in my patients and i started to realize that people had more iron overload than i'd ever guessed and when i started to get them to go and donate blood a lot of their medical problems started to go away for the record i'm not practicing medicine via the internet you should discuss any health diet and lifestyle changes with your doctor before you make them But this became a really critical part of my practice. By the way, I can be your doctor. You go to the links in my link tree. There's links to our annual plans and so on and so forth um, in those links. And that's why one of the reasons I offer that is because we do ferritin testing and we actually see where people are with iron overload syndromes. I also wrote a lot about this in my book, which is right here. It's called Dying to be Free. Pick it up. It's really great. You will get a lot out of it um however people don't understand this in the medical literature and they they write things like this our results suggest that iron overload seems unlikely among middle-aged women through their diet and nutritional supplements however if you go back and you look at this chart and you look at where these serum ferritin levels are they are grossly normal yet as they increase patients have worse numbers so what's really going on here as serum ferritin goes up you tend to see more coronary artery disease more cancer and worse outcomes in i would say basically all disease states why is this and why is it so confusing because serum ferritin as a marker for total body iron is a terrible terrible test and this is also well described in the literature so liver iron and serum ferritin levels are misleading for estimating cardiac heart pancreatic splenic and total body iron load in thalassemia patients. But we should assume this is the same in patients who don't have thalassemia. I'm unfamiliar with any reason why it wouldn't be. So what determines where the iron is? I strongly argue with you that it is subtle changes and differences in hormonal status that govern where the minerals and heavy metals are being deposited. And that partly explains why people who have the same exposure, or men or women, with radically different hormone profiles, can have the same exposure to something like a heavy metal or another toxin, and not have the similar clinical presentation or clinical course. So to wit, this article, MRI assessment revealed that excess iron is not proportionally distributed among the organs, but is stored at different concentrations in each organ and the distribution is different for each patient. There is random variation in the distribution of excess storage iron from normal to severe levels in each organ. I don't think that variation is random. I think if we understood everything about how hormones affect that and we could monitor the hormones, we could figure it out, but there is no way we're ever, I mean, I shouldn't say ever, I find it, it would be extremely difficult to figure this out. So I just keep it simple in my practice and I just stick to what nature gave me to treat patients, which is bioidentical hormones. This is part of why I think that when you look at the bioidentical hormone literature, there's such a paucity of evidence for real damage to people okay coming from that now what i want everyone to take away from this is very simple because i feel like i've sort of rambled all over the place with this topic because it's really far reaching in terms of its impact it's a lot of different papers and corners of the literature that i've spent months and years studying but the bottom line is this as the body gets more and more and more overloaded with iron people tend to get sicker and sicker and sicker And I don't care what kind of disease you're talking about, all the diseases of modernity, practically speaking, can be linked back to total body iron overload. What are we doing less of now than ever before in history? Bleeding. What do oral contraceptive pills do? They stop women from bleeding. Even if they continue to have what we call breakthrough bleeding or spotting, they're not losing as much uh, iron in the form of menstrual blood as they would have if they were not on oral contraceptive pills are modern women having heavier and heavier periods that are more and more painful because the body is trying to purge excess iron and or heavy metals from the body through menstrual menstrual the menstrual cycle that's a really interesting hypothesis and i've never heard of anyone actually studying it in academia and you know what more on that later we have more stuff to cover today but my point with this is simply that I don't trust synthetic birth control because I'm concerned of how it affects mineral status in the body. And young women are obviously getting away with it. The risks, the absolute risk increases that you see with hormonal contraceptive are relatively small. Something like three in 10,000, three in a hundred thousand. Okay. Depending on the disease you're looking at in the age range, personally, I think that's too many patients to be having adverse outcomes like pulmonary emboli and other thrombotic events, which are really can be life threatening. Um, which is, and again, why I don't like oral contraceptive pills and why I don't use them. But I think if there's anything toxic that they're causing women to hold on to, it's actually more the minerals than anything else. Okay. But there are other issues with birth control pills that are not thought of as toxic. And this has to do with the way that I approach practicing medicine now compared to how I was trained. So one of my really big problems with conventional medical, the conventional medical system is they don't pay any attention to what the patient's goal is. And I've learned the hard way that you really have to have a conversation with patients about what their goal is, because your ultimate goal as a clinician is to support the patient in the pursuit of their goals. So long as those goals are appropriate, right? One of the things that women often want is to have children. But they don't just care about having children. They care about having healthy, vibrant, functional, happy children. Okay. So women should be, and practically speaking, are very concerned with the health of their offspring. And one thing that women do not, I think, get adequate information about in our, you know, public square is the fact that as they get older, statistically, their children are more and more and more likely to get sick and to be sickly, unhealthy, frankly, medically complex kids. And they don't want that. What do oral contraceptive pills allow women to do? It allows them to delay the time uh, timing of childbearing. So oral contraceptive pills are contributing to the increase in childhood disease because women are using them in order to postpone childbearing, okay? And that is a very unpopular, politically incorrect statement, but it's absolutely true. And this is just one example of how big of a deal that is. Mothers of children with a food allergy had about three times greater odds of being aged 30 or over at the time of delivery than mothers in either of the comparison groups. This is again, just one study, but there is paper after paper, after paper like this in the medical literature. This is not controversial at all. The older you are, when you have your children, the higher the likelihood that they are going to have a complicated uh, childhood medical course. This is also true for autoimmune diseases. And if there's two problems that keep parents up at night for their children in our modern world, it's allergies and autoimmunity. So type one diabetes is one of the most important childhood autoimmune illnesses. And indeed, increasing maternal age was related to risk of islet autoimmunity among first degree relatives of persons with type one diabetes. Okay. So again, I just want people to understand this. It's about more than just the effects of birth control on toxins and toxin accumulation within the body. It's also about how is this affecting a woman's likelihood of achieving her goals in life? Now, part of having healthy, successful, happy kids is that most women are gonna say that they also wanna have a healthy, successful marriage. One of the top reasons for a divorce is infertility okay so the fact that women are not being told this and they're being told you can just take the pill and have premarital sex is i think not doing them any favors i think it's actually creating a lot of harm this i think is a very apt title sleepwalking into infertility the need for a public health approach toward advanced maternal age we argue that women should be better informed regarding the risks of advanced maternal age and that these individual solutions need to be supplemented by a public health approach blah, 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 blah. blah. The drive for women to get education and to pursue a career is having untoward effects on their fertility. And I can't tell you how tragic it is to be counseling women in their 30s and 40s who are trying so hard to have children and who are spending all the money and more that they spent on their fancy degree on IVF. I cannot tell you how sad that is. It is very difficult to watch. And the sad fact is, is that for every certain number of those women who enter my practice, a certain number of, them, number of them will fail. They will not have children at all. Of those who do manage to have children, many of them will have fewer children than they would have liked. And because of this choice to delay another a further proportion are going to have children who have adverse childhood out- outcomes and who are not as healthy and well-adjusted. Now, this goes back to the marriage because as the kids get sicker, this creates a strain on the marriage. And so the marriage is less likely to be happy. So women want kids, they want the kids to be healthy, but very closely associated with that women tend to want a happy, healthy, successful marriage. So what does the use of birth control do to a woman's likelihood of having a happy marriage? This is a subject that I actually haven't seen studied as much as the question of what happens with premarital sex and, and marital outcomes. So it is incontrovertible. No one disputes this in the literature. If you've had more sexual partners, there is a higher likelihood of divorce. This relationship is not linear. It isn't a simple you know, X to Y relationship. It's very complex. There's lots of other factors, other, uh, 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 other characteristics of the patients, or in this case, subjects, I guess. Uh, of these studies have to be taken into account, religious background, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is this, if a woman's top priorities in life are to have healthy, successful children and a healthy, happy marriage, perhaps the worst thing she can do to maximize her chances of success is use oral contraceptives. Prove me wrong. Another really important element which goes back to oral contraceptive use is how early in life a woman has sex. So earlier sexual debut, that's first onset of sexual uh, activity and a very late uh, sexual debut, both have risks for uh, 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 increased sexual risk behaviors and problems with sexual functioning. But at the same time, using oral contraceptive pills in order to facilitate that earlier uh, sexual debut should not be considered to be something that is healthy. You know, regardless of what you believe about when you should have sex, whether you should have it outside of marriage and so on and so forth, if a woman is on oral contraception and is racking up sexual partners and is having an earlier uh, timing of sexual debut because of her use of oral contraception, she is just hurting her chances of having healthy functional offspring. The book that really changed my thinking on this There's a book called Christian marriage by a guy named David Ayers, David Ayers, it gives us a great breakdown of all the things that actually increase your risk of divorce and that predict the likelihood of a happy and stable and successful marriage. I mean, just for the people who are going to post it in the comments, I'll say it now. I'm not saying that divorce is always a bad thing. There's lots of unhealthy, dysfunctional marriages out there that are utterly miserable. And there's a reason that we have divorce. But at the end of the day, if you ask most people who are interested in getting married and having children, if they want their marriage to last, or if they want it to be a flash in the pan, all of them are going to say they want it to last. So wouldn't it make sense for you to do everything in your power to make it work? Okay, the secret sauce is in this book. And it's actually relatively simple. I can remember almost all of it off the top of my head. But don't hold me to that. It's basically get married after the age of 20, have a college degree, go to church every Sunday and don't have sex before marriage. Those are the things that actually move the needle on whether or not you're going to have a marriage that lasts, you know, burn me upside down at the stake, as Jim likes to say, but that's what the data says. And I think that women should know that before they go out and live a certain lifestyle, that's going to hurt their chances of having a healthy marriage whether it's a Christian marriage or not, and whether or not they're going to have healthy, stable offspring. And this is the last paper that I'm going to cover today, which isn't actually a paper, I cannot believe that I found this in the Atlantic a news outlet that I absolutely loathe and detest and consider totally and completely unreliable, but they actually did publish this study and this is based on things that I've seen and heard and that line up with everything I've been talking about in the last couple of papers, which is that fewer sexual partners predicts a happier marriage. Um, Look at this. Americans who have only ever slept with their spouses are the most likely to report being in a very happy marriage the lowest odds of marital happiness, about 13 percentage points lower than the one partner, women belong to women who have had six to 10 sexual partners in their lives. For men, there's still a dip, but it's never as low as it gets for the women. So what is the takeaway from this paper? And I have to give a hat tip to um, Pearl Davis, who is a fascinating character and has got some really interesting and spicy takes on things, which is why they banned her from TikTok. Uh, She was the first person to bring this to my attention and i found it to be totally fascinating and again it lined up with stuff i've been reading for a long 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 uh time that i thought was really really important so i'm running a little bit longer than i wanted to here these are supposed to be about 30 minutes here's the bottom line birth control pills are being used more and more and more to help women control symptoms that are related to hormonal imbalances in a world in which they are under a constant assault from what we call endocrine disrupting or hormone disrupting chemicals, where they are also simultaneously being malnourished by processed foods and inundated with all kinds of toxic things like EMF and artificial light and all all the other things in modern life that are making people sick and that I write about in my book and that I talk about incessantly in my social media.